Welcome to Switchblade Sisters, where women get together to slice and dice our favorite action and genre films. I'm film critic April Wolf. Every week, I invite a new female filmmaker on, a writer, director, actor, producer, etc. And we talk in-depth about their fave genre film, maybe one that influenced their own work. And today, I'm so excited to have writer-director Trish C. here with us. Hi. <laughs> She's reading this paper like, this is where Trish says hello. <laughs> now Trish says hi. Hi. <laughs> I'm going to give you a quick background on Trish's work. Uh, you may have first been introduced to Trish through the Grammy Award-winning video she directed for o- OK Go, which featured the band doing some choreographed jogging on treadmills. Does that ring a bell? Probably. For OK Go, she also directed a weightless video in the plane. I definitely remember seeing that when it came out. Um, Studios had gotten wind of her talent in between those, and she was given the reins of the Step Up franchise and directing uh, Step Up All In in 3D, actually. She's written and directed the shorts Not Alone, Being Dennis, and The Big Breakup, but she's got a new studio movie in the theaters right now, a little picture called Pitch Perfect Three, starring Anna Kendrick, Rebel Wilson, Haley Steinfeld, Anna Camp, and so many others. Okay, so... Today, Trish has decided to talk about one bizarro, wacko, a great film, a great film, and it's called Snowpiercer. So, Trish, could you tell us a little bit about why Snowpiercer is one of your fave genre films? I mean, what is not to love about Snowpiercer? This is the most (laughs) bananas movie I think I've seen in the last five, ten years, maybe. I mean, it's really out there. I... I love it for so many reasons. First of all, I love the look of this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like it's just got every single thing happening. Um, you know, for the first like half hour of the movie, I thought we were going to be in sort of like, you know, post- post-apocalyptic, like blue, green, gray soot world mm-hmm. for the whole movie. Yeah. And then, you know, your first clue is when... Or should we be talking? Like, are people going to worry if they haven't seen the movie that we're well, spoiling? Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give my spoiler alert okay. when you're done with okay. your Okay, well, then I won't go too far. But, like, when that woman Claude comes in in her yellow jacket, that, like, canary yellow jacket, which mm-hmm. I know that um, the director Bong picked because of it's, like, the, the most incandescent shade on the spectrum. You're just given this sort of, like, peephole into what is to come. And then when you go through all these different worlds and cars, and it's all just so weird and fucked up. I love the action. Um, I love the performances. I think these are, like, some of the finest acting performances these actors who have done a lot of and stuff. And, of course, it's going to get snubbed at any kind of awards, yeah. though. I mean, it's well, genre film. And it kind of doesn't make that much sense. I know yeah. people have said, like, oh, it's about capitalism, or, like, it's sort of like a parable about this. It's got, like, Christian overtones. I don't know. I mean, I see all of that, and I understand some of that symbolism. But for the most part, like, it's not about the story for me, It's it, which, is co- which is a cool story. It's just sort of the premise and the look and the people and the ballsiness of it. Well, we're definitely going to get into yeah. all of those. Okay. Um, for those who haven't seen Snowpiercer yet, today's episode will give you some spoilers. But that should not stop you from listening before you watch. My motto is that it's not what happens, but how it happens that makes a movie worth watching. Still, if you want to pause and peep Snowpiercer first, go ahead now. 
Okay, everyone's okay. back. Everyone's back. Everyone's okay. back. Now let's introduce Snowpiercer. Directed by Bong Joon-ho in 2013, Snowpiercer stars Chris Evans as Curtis Everett in a dystopian future where the only humans left in the world reside on a bullet train that must stay constantly moving or else all passengers will succumb to the cold of an ice age. Okay, everyone got that in their head? Let's move on to the next part. <laughs> Curtis lives in the tail of the train where all the other poor and undesirables toil and eat disgusting little protein blocks for food and they get kept in line by Minister Mason, who's played by Tilda Swinton, and who's a sniveling elite bureaucrat, basically the scariest kind of villain. Curtis bands together with the others and leads a revolt with the main goal of fighting their way to the engine of the train. Along the way, they meet Namkung Minsu and his clairvoyant daughter Yona, played by Song Kang-ho and Ko Ah-sung. Um, Namgung is a security expert who can get them through the other train cars at at points. Um, They also take Minister Mason hostage and have her lead them through some high security cars, too. Uh, And they find out that there are really, really privileged people who are eating and drinking and relaxing with zero knowledge of the hardships of the tail end folks. It's a slap in the face. Eventually, they do get up to the engine, but it's just not quite the victory they'd hoped for. So that's Snowpiercer in a nutshell. But let's talk about this cast. This is a left field cast for me because you've got Captain America himself with Korean superstar Song Kang-ho next to Tilda Swinton, next to Octavia Spencer, next to Ed Harris, John Hurt. And the list goes on. Jamie Bell is in there. Jamie Bell is in there. I mean, he didn't even like. Like, he didn't even register in, like, the tops, too, no, because no. I was just like, oh, my God, there's so many people. Yeah. It's a potpourri of magnificence, casting-wise. Yeah. It really is. And some unlikely choices. I mean, I know the director, Bong, was, like, not that sure about Chris Evans because he's so muscly mm-hmm. and he's so macho and he's so, like, the epitome of American health. And he he's supposed to play this kind of poor, weak guy who's been living on cockroach gel, right, for, like, 18 years. Yeah. And, but he pulls it off. I mean, I guess they had to do some, like, cutting off of his sleeves and stuff under his clothes so that he was, like, as skinny as he could be, and they had to kind of hide his buffness. But, I mean, he's pretty, like, pathos-y. I love that he... He saw um, Evans's earlier films, yeah, Puncture. the little ones, yeah, Puncture and Sunshine, and said that he's sensitive. He's sensitive, and he's yeah. smart. Yeah, and I think I I read that Bong liked that he was a director too, because he felt that you know that Evans is a director as well as an actor, because he felt like that gave him a certain amount of like depth and understanding. But it's isn't it nice that his specific thing that Bong was looking for in an action film hero was sensitivity. Sensitivity, yeah. That's one of the other things I love about this movie. It's not really an action hero movie, and it's not really – the message is very nuanced to the extent that I even understand what the message is. It's very um, ambivalent, I think. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we're so used to seeing, like, the clear lines of good and evil and who's the hero, who's the villain. And, you know, there are some pretty clear villains in this movie, but there's a lot of – ambiguity about who's doing the right thing and what the right choices are. I really like that. Yeah. And uh, I mean, that speaks to a different kind of action film that I guess we don't often get in America. Mm -hmm. And maybe one, uh, like the reason why Chris Evans was like, yeah, if I'm going to be, yeah, if I'm going to have to be Captain America, I'm going to be Captain America who's like really screwed up. Yeah, and, and who eats babies. Sorry for the spoiler, guys. Um, (laughs) We warned you. Yeah. (laughs) 
Yeah, it's. I mean, there's a lot of. It's pretty messed up. I like Chris Evans. It turns out. Me too. I, I really enjoy Me him. Me and too. I, I have to wonder. Okay, so you right now are. You know, you're promoting Pitch Perfect three. Yeah. You're working with these actors who um, have reputations that precede them. You've seen their work probably before. Um, you know, you've got uh, Anna Kendrick and Elizabeth Banks. Mm-hmm. As well, yeah. you know, and Elizabeth Banks had directed um, a previous Pitch Perfect, right? So, did you have any kind of preconceived notions of like what you were coming into, and you know, their like any kind of abilities? Did you feel that this was something where you wanted to kind of um, stretch their acting wings, or did you want to try to stick to what was happening in the, the previous two? I mean, I think it's a little bit of both. I, I wanted these characters to feel very much like the characters people have come to know and love. And I don't want it to feel like we've reinvented them in some way. At the mm-hmm. same time, it's been seven years since this franchise started. And when these characters were introduced, they were in the you know 18 to 20 age range. And in our story now, they're in their mid-20s. And those are really important years in people's lives where a lot of growing up happens and a lot of change happens. So I don't want them to feel stuck. I want them to evolve the way real people evolve. Mm -hmm. Um, And as actors, I wanted these women who are quite good actors and and skillful actors, I wanted them to have a chance to do something new and to to take their characters to a new place um, and be challenged because they're coming back to this franchise and it would be easy to phone it in. But they didn't oh, want yeah. to do that. It would be so easy It'd to phone so it in. It would be so easy to phone it in. And I think the reason they wanted, um, you know, a, a, a new director, I mean, obviously Elizabeth Banks couldn't do it. She was too busy. But, you know, instead of getting like a seasoned comedy actor or someone, I think they wanted someone to direct this film who needs it for their as a calling card to show they can direct and show yeah. they can work with actors. And so I think everybody wanted the same thing, which was to push it to a new place and take the characters you know and love, but show them doing something new and growing and changing. And, you know, there has been a few years time since we last saw these characters. So mm-hmm. it gives you a little room to ask some Thing different of them, and these actors were really ready to do that. I mean, they wanted to. I don't. They weren't interested in phoning it in any more than anybody else was. Yeah, they've all gone on to do different projects yeah. from from these. And They're really good, very high profile mm-hmm. ones. Yeah, you work with a lot of ensembles and a lot of people on a stage at a single time, and we're talking about uh, Step Up, or mm. even even the OK Go. Even OK Go, yeah. You know, it's a lot of wrangling. It's a lot of different people. And I'm thinking about this in terms of um, Bong Joon-ho's uh, directorial style, where if there are so many people crammed yeah. into such a tiny space. Yeah. And that is incredible to me. It actually gives me so much anxiety thinking about yeah. how you would handle where to put all these people, um, you know, and how much control you have over, you know, the casting of it. Like, what do you what do you need for uh, this corner of the room? What does this person need to look like? And I'm I'm curious, you know, how do you handle having, you know, hundreds of people around at the same time? Like even looking at the trailer of Step Up All In, it's just like, oh, my God, these huge dance scenes, tons of people watching. 
Yeah. It's nuts. I mean, sometimes when you have hundreds, it's easier than having 10. Really? You know, because if you've got a crowd, that whole crowd in a way becomes a character itself and it has its own sort of rhythm and it has its own, it takes up sort of its own amount of space. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the individuals in that crowd uh, are people, obviously, but, you know, they are aware of each other and they kind of act as a unit in a way. And to the extent that they move as individuals, that's sort of part of what you want, just like pixels on a screen. Each one's got a job to do. Um, so the crowd scenes are kind of okay. And and people that act in crowd scenes have often done a lot of this work, and they're quite good at it. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, there's some sort of like, guys, I need you to be less excited. I need you to be more excited. Guys, I need you to know the words to the song or not know the words. I need you to sort of move this way. I need you to clap here. You know, there's some of that. But mm-hmm. mostly crowds kind of take care of themselves. Um, and it is. It's these medium scenes. And dance scenes take care of themselves because, well, once they're choreographed. I mean, I had fantastic choreographers on, on all the movies I've worked on. And I come from that world. And um, I, I understand how much it takes to put a dance together. Once it's well-crafted, shooting it is a joy. Mm-hmm. Um, what I find is hard is the scenes where you've got 10 people with 10 different storylines happening, mm-hmm. you know? Like mm-hmm. a crowd kind of all has the same basic um, agenda to watch a show or to go from here to there or to cheer for something or to scream at something. You know, in a dance, everybody has their choreography but when you've got a scene where like 10 different people have different opinions on something or they're involved in 10 different activities like or like 12 angry men kind of thing yeah or? you know some of these scenes where like um all 10 of the B- bellas are like sitting in a room talking or they have different ideas about what they should be doing next or and the, the bellas are the pitch perfect I'm sorry, uh, acapella right. group exactly yeah. the 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 singers um that to me is the biggest challenge cuz you want to make sure each person feels like they have a good um story to tell, even if they're not talking, you know, Mm -hmm. even if the camera's not on them a lot of the time, they've still got to seem like a real person doing real things and not just hitting marks and finding their light. Do you ever, uh, like, let's say you're directing something where you've got all 10 of them on screen Mm -hmm. and some of them have dialogue, some of them don't. Do you stop the camera and try to give people really specific physical movements that they're doing if they're, if they're, even if they're not talking? I think it really depends on the actor because some of them don't want that and some of them don't need that and some of them make such interesting choices on their own that I would have never come up with that I love Mm -hmm. that it's better for me just to kind of like see what they do and keep my mouth shut on that front and then some people really want that input um, and want you know to know like what should I be doing with you know should I have a pair of castanets in my hands should I be doing Mm-hmm. You know, should I be building a paper airplane here? Should I be pacing nervously? Should I be, you know, does it does it matter if I'm sitting or standing? Like some people really want, you know, and in some situations an actor might want it. In another situation they don't. I think a lot of it is, yeah, just like collaborating with these people because it's a group effort. And I don't like to boss people around unless I really have to. I'd mm-hmm. rather suggest things or listen to their suggestions and sort of figure it out as a team. Okay, and we're going to take a quick break here, but we're going to come back and we're going to talk a little bit more about the choreography of these things in relation to both Trisha's work and to Snowpiercer. We'll be right back. Hello, 
Internet. I'm your husband host, Travis McElroy. And I'm your wife host, Teresa McElroy. And together we present Schmanners. It's extraordinary etiquette. For ordinary occasions. We explain the historical significance of everyday etiquette topics, then answer your questions relating to modern life. So join us weekly on MaximumFun.org or wherever podcasts are found. No RSVP required. Check out Schmanners. Schmanners, Schmanners. Get it? And we're back, and you're listening to Switchblade Sisters. I'm film critic April Wolf, and I'm joined today by Trish C., who is uh, here talking to us about Bong Joon-ho's Snowpiercer. Um, we were just talking about, you know, the choreography and and also how to manage large groups of people on stage or, or rather on the screen at the same time. Um, and I, I wanted to go back to the way that Bong Joon-ho um, has said that he directs things. And in fact, there there's a really great interview that uh, I think Fangoria had done with John Hurt before he died, which I just I love John Hurt so much. Um, but what he had said is that uh Bong Joon-ho is really, quote-unquote, Hitchcockian when he directs. Um, even though he's got these huge crowd scenes, all these you know people doing different things, um, he, like the host, for mm-hmm. instance, please go back and watch the host. I Hopefully know. we'll have a, an episode about that. Um, but there's these cramp fight scenes in Snowpiercer. He only shoots what's going to end up in the final cut. Whereas John Hurt said, quote, there's none of that messing around and covering it from asshole to breakfast time. <laughs> oh, R.I.P. John Hurt. Quote. Oh, God. Um, so that's an incredibly difficult thing to do, to hold this entire vision of this film in your head and to know it's right right then uh, and and to be able to show it that way. Um, Other directors will wait for their actors to lead and improvise as they go, and then some do a mix of both. And can you talk a little bit more about your process when you're doing this? In general, I like to know exactly what I'm doing, and I like to know exactly how I want it to end up and shoot it that way. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm not as much of a purist as Bong Joon-ho is, like, I definitely shoot myself some options generally. But usually if I'm doing, a, like, a short film of my own or when we're doing OK Go videos, I definitely – I don't I don't love storyboards in real life, but I have storyboards sort of in my head and I stick quite closely to them. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, I shoot pretty fast because I don't usually shoot things that I don't think I want or need um, – but when you're making a studio movie, um, you have to shoot a certain way, or at least someone at my level yeah. or someone with my level of experience has to. You have to cover things and you have to give yourself options for later and you have to give the studio options for later and you have to um, you know, you have to be a bit flexible. And I, there were definitely parts of the movie that, that were very closely storyboarded and they ended up pretty much exactly like the storyboards. Um, Which has to be a really amazing feeling. Like, wow, it's really cool. Yeah, it's like it's like seeing the you know the um, the architectural blueprints for a house and then living in the house. You just it's kind of cr- it's crazy that these things happen and then yeah. they do. Um, and plans often work for building things, um, but there are also scenes where you just know um, it's going to be more natural if the actors are allowed to ad lib and improvise or provide alternate. Um, jokes like you know Rebel Wilson's really 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 good at coming up with lots of different versions of a joke she's brilliant at that and sometimes we'll just let the camera roll on her and she'll provide the same you know moment in the story 10 different ways Mm -hmm. and all of them could work and and 
you just want to be able to play with it later and sort of get the the right one. So yeah, definitely. It's yeah, it's a mix, I guess. I mean, I I was definitely curious about about having Rebel Wilson in a film and and how you work with someone who's very quick-witted and who may give you almost too many options. Emily, I can't believe that a half-decent idea came out of your dumb mouth. Thank you. Okay, so let's get tarted up. Tarted and up? Tarted. It sounds like tarted no, up. Tarted up. She means tarted. She's the caramel tart. She's a chocolate tart. You're the vanilla tart. Did you discuss this with her before? Yeah, like, what yeah. did you guys talk about? Well, I mean, I asked her just to please give me a heads up when she had lots of material mm. so that I could schedule it. Because I'm, oh, okay. I'm pretty... I'm... I'm I mean, I don't want to brag, April, but I'm pretty good at sticking to my shooting schedule. Um, and <laughs> the I take, studios love yeah, that. Yeah, I take a lot of pride in that. Um, and so I thought, like I said, I thought it was really important to, to mine that skill of hers for gold, like just let her do a lot of this. But it was important also to not, you know, have my AD screaming in my ear that we're running late. So we just built in time. It was yeah. like, warn me when you have good material for a scene, just tell me the night before so that I can do my shot list and give extra time. It also helps to warn the other actors because you don't want to be disrespectful. Some actors like to ad lib, some like to stick to the script. Yeah. And you don't want to just kind of like make it rebels world and we're all just, you know, living in it. Yeah, so yeah. warning everybody and everybody knowing what to expect was both schedule wise and creatively. Um, and sometimes it's like, look, we're going to do the scene as it's written a few times, and then it's going to be we go to Rebel Town and everybody is fine, you know. <laughs> and just keeping everybody apprised of what's happening um, so everybody's expectations are in line. That's that's all it is. God, that's such a job of a director. Right. Everyone's expectations uh, have to be managed. Isn't that the truth? Oh, wow. So, you know, speaking of, like, Rebel Wilson and, and the um, – you know, going off script and kind of developing this character with her and these lines. I wanted to return to Bong's um, working relationship with Tilda Swinton because I love oh, I love this everything so much. that I heard. I um, love this so much because Bong Joon Ho had met her at Cannes. Yeah, and uh, when she was premiering, we need to talk right. about Kevin Lynn Ramsey's uh, fucking phenomenal movie. Yeah. Um, same costume designer, by the way. I did not know that. I love it. That yeah. makes me love it even mm -hmm. more. So um, Bong apparently knew like right away that he needed to work with her, but didn't know how it was going to be and definitely didn't think it was going to be Snowpiercer uh, because the role of the minister was written for a quiet, peaceful man. And he'd actually approached John C. Riley at first. Can who, you imagine how different it would be with that? What? I yeah. mean, it's one of those things because John C. Riley was her co-star in We Need to Talk mm -hmm. About uh, Kevin. And can you imagine like watching that and being like, well, I don't know, maybe either of them. And exactly. <laughs> And so I love the idea that you can just find this actor that you love and you can say, fuck it. And you can say, I want to work with you. So let's completely change this role and play with it. Would you wear a shoe on your head? Of course you wouldn't wear a shoe on your head. A shoe doesn't belong on your head. A shoe belongs on your foot. A hat belongs on your head. I am a hat. You are a shoe. I belong on the head. You belong on the foot. Yes, so it is. And Bong said that he let her go wild, changing her appearance. Um, but then he had to pull her back on some things like, uh, a quote, a pair of uh, giant pendulous breasts that she wanted to yeah, strap on. Yeah, I heard on. about that. Did you also hear that Jamie Bell apparently loved to wear the pendulous breasts? Yes, I and, love like, it. And like in their cast, official cast photo, I believe, I was told he's wearing the giant breasts. Which is amazing because yeah. I love 
thinking that this movie that has like so many kind of serious and violent themes and stuff, like they were just having so much fun. They were on set. They were having fun. They also John Hurt and um, Tilda Swinton also said that they never wanted to work with another director again. I mean, apparently this was just yeah, a really satisfying creative experience. Yeah. I get the feel of that when I'm watching it. Like, I just feel like these people were like 100% empowered and invested in what they were doing. I think that might be one of the things I love the most about this movie. It's just a sense you get. Yeah. Even though it's off the wall, everyone is so all in. It's so incredible. Yeah. Octavia Spencer. um, Yeah. Let's talk about her in this movie for a minute. I I love that she's in this movie. And I forgot that. Um, she and John Hurt were in this movie for some reason when I when I rewatched and I was like, oh my god, yeah, it takes you right. by surprise. Um, and she's she's so wonderful. She um, when this film has, was coming out, um, Harvey Weinstein actually made a decision um, to not use Bong Joon Ho's cut, the director's cut, but rather to cut twenty minutes out of it for a U.S. release. Yeah, and I heard he also wanted to add like monologues at the beginning and the end, yeah. and there were like several demands that he made. Yeah. And Which didn't happen, right? I no. mean, none of it happened. But one of the reasons it didn't happen was Octavia Spencer was giving an interview, I think, with Vulture. And she said that, you know, she signed on yeah. because he's an auteur right. and she wanted his vision. And John Hurt went a step further and started lobbying uh, to other magazines to I be like, it. this is dumb. Why would you do this? Um, and so they didn't end up releasing his the Bong Joon-ho's cut in the U.S. after the actors kind of put their foot down and um, and said, and they had power. I love which, that. I love that story right now because, you know, fuck Harvey Weinstein. And I like that, you know, Octavia Spencer was one of the people who stood up to him and was just like, no, this is actually yeah, what we want. Yeah, you're being an this, idiot. Yeah, you're being dumb. So like, bravo. I love it. I love it. Um, and so it did, it did end up releasing uh, as the, as his vision, which thank God. But I have to wonder in your work, mm-hmm. What is your post-production and releasing like? I feel like Step Up All In had to do a, a global release, right? Of course. And, and it's Perfect. very different. Oh, yeah. Sorry, keep going. No, Pitch Perfect 3 for sure, too. Yeah, they both are, you know, made for international audiences as, yeah. well, as well as domestic, especially Pitch Perfect. But, you know, it's very different because both of these movies are are obviously franchise movies and they have a big fan base. And your number one responsibility is to your fan base because the whole reason you're up to number three or number five or whatever in a series is because the fans have demanded it, want it, yeah, you know, funded it, frankly. So um, you gotta you gotta make a movie that they want. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't mean you let them dictate everything because what part of what they want is a good story and part of what they want is to be surprised in in certain ways and part of what they want is to have somebody um you know lovingly care for this this story and these characters that they adore mm-hmm. um but at the same time you know it's not really about your vision when you're doing a movie like this it's about you you know telling the next chapter in an established world with yeah. established characters. That said, nobody like like I was saying about committee decisions, nobody likes a movie that doesn't have a voice. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have a point of view and nobody wants to see the same movie again. Like well, I mean it's one thing to watch your favorite movie again, but no one wants to see Pitch Perfect 3 look just like Pitch Perfect 2. So you have to sort of balance having a vision, having a perspective, having a POV and then, you know, 
staying in the world that's been established for this particular movie. And, you know, I would love for my next movie to be able to do more of a Snowpiercer <laughs> and not not necessarily make a movie like that, but be able to just say, I'm this now is my invention, mm-hmm. you know, and I'm I'm building it from the ground up and it can be anything I want it to be. And you would get final cut. And... Well, you know, if you're Snowpiercer, you do. Yeah. How much of a luxury is that? I don't know that many directors get it anymore. I mean, I guess, you know, you know as much as I do or more. I, I Maybe if you're, you know, a huge, huge director or you're making a an indie movie um, that, you know, your your producers and financiers are really cool mm-hmm. about it. But, you know, also, I think Final Cut is a little overrated in the sense that, again, while you don't want it to feel like it was made in a boardroom, you get snowblind after a while inside mm-hmm. your own movie and inside your own head. And it does help to listen to other people, not necessarily Harvey Weinstein. Yeah. Uh, you know, Note but, to all filmmakers, don't listen to Harvey Weinstein. Yeah. But, I mean, I think it does help to show it to people and really take to heart what they tell you. And um, if they say, like, this scene just sucks. And it's like, all right, one person tells you that. Take it for what it is. But when, like, you start hearing it repeatedly, maybe you need to cut that scene or fix it, you know. And even if it's exactly what you pictured, maybe it's not working. Mm-hmm. Um, and I I just believe in collaborating so much because it's gotten me where I am. I would never be here without all the people that have helped me that it's hard for me to imagine um, being able to make a film by myself without – relying on other people's mm-hmm. opinions, even in the edit phase. Yeah. Um, because it's no different in the edit phase. You know, Bong picturing Mason as a quiet, peaceful man and, and turning out to the, like, one of the most brilliant things about the movie is it being Tilda Swinton. Like, if he hadn't been open to that, it wouldn't have happened. And the same kind of thing happens all the way through the course of making a movie, including in the edit. And I think you just have to sort of, like, keep yourself open to those possibilities. Yeah. Um, We're going to take another quick break, and then we're going to come back and talk a little bit more about these specific train cars in this this film. Yeah. Because I want to get into these these train cars and these different worlds that Bong Joon-ho builds. Ugh, so good. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. SF Sketchfest is just around the corner, January 11th to 28th, and there will be plenty of Max Fun shows there to represent. We're bringing Judge John Hodgman on the 11th, Jordan Jesse Go with special guest Andy Richter on the 12th, Schmanners on the 14th. We got this with Mark and Howe also on the 14th. The Greatest Generation and Friendly Fire Podcast Super Show on the 17th. Pop Rocket host Guy Branham's talk show The Game Show on the 19th. And One Bad Mother on the 21st. You can learn more about these shows and get tickets at MaximumFun.org slash SFSketchFest18. Get your tickets now. We're back. You're listening to Switchblade Sisters. I'm film critic April Wolf, and today I'm joined by director Trish C. talking about Bong Joon Ho's Snowpiercer. Um, we, I think, are both in agreement that every little world that he builds, uh, that Bong Joon Ho builds in this train, is just incredible. It, it each has its own kind of personality, its own color palette, um, uh, a specific uh, characters in it that are different from any other train car. He's essentially doing multiple movies within a single film. 
What's your favorite train car? I think my favorite train car is the greenhouse Mm. um, with, like, the woman knitting. And it's so surreal. I'm a big plant lover. And it was just – it honestly felt – when we came to that, it was so surprising and unexpected for me to see this. And, you know, all all the rest of the movie was so full of metal and dust and, um, you know – dirt, um, Mm -hmm. bad dirt, not good dirt, that to see this like paradise of green and flowers and peacefulness was so shocking to me. Mm -hmm. Um, And I love plants and I love flowers. Uh, It was, yeah, I just, that one took my breath away. It's probably a tie between that or the schoolroom. I found the schoolroom in equal measure shocking, like an absolute hell. I mean, it was like cute, obviously, but that was what made it so hellish. So I want to talk a little bit more about that OK Go video, uh, the treadmill one, and and how intricate that choreography does has to be so that mm. no one gets hurt. Yeah. <laughs> like, these are, I mean, these are musicians. Right. They are not actors or dancers of any sort. But you've got, I mean, I've been hurt on a treadmill. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, they're dangerous. They will yeah. eat you alive, yeah. actually. Especially, like, in our case, we had them all running towards each other. So when you fell off the back of one, you just oh. got, like, gobbled up by uh. the one behind it. Yeah, it was pretty um, It was pretty hellish. I, there were a lot of minor injuries on that. Nothing too major. <laughs> I, I do remember, though, because we spent about, you know, 10 days playing on the treadmills and figuring out how this was all going to go. And after the first day, I do remember Andy Ross, the guitarist in OK Go, just said, like, we're not we shouldn't do this. We're going to either die or get hurt really bad. (laughs) And it's just not worth it. Yeah. Um, And we kind of all grudgingly agreed with him. We agreed to come back the next day and sort of give it another shot. And by the end of the second day, we felt like we were starting to get our, like, treadmill legs under us. And yeah. from then on, they go, I got a pretty good hematoma on my thigh. Like, Oh, man. Like, it was like half of a football just kind of, like, growing out of my thigh that lasted for a while. Like, so you were kind of performing to try to get the choreography right. Yeah, into... we were all over those treadmills together, yeah. you know. And my brother threw his back out for a while and had to, like, lie on a lounge chair with ice for for oh a while and I would just have to the fill in for him and, and do video. his yeah 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 I don't know you know we were all young then and we were we were much more I mean part of it was stupidity I guess but part of it was just you know you bounce back faster when you're young I don't I don't know that we would do it again now yeah Mm-mm. that makes me want to bring up that uh John Hurt actually yeah. got hurt right uh, on the set of Snowpiercer. I think he fell like 14 feet and like shattered uh, like a bone in his heel. Yeah, I heard that. And so that's why um, uh, he he actually had to be on um, crutches for mm-hmm. Only Lovers Left Alive, which also stars Tilda Swinton because they went, they both straight went from straight the... from Snowpiercer yep. to Only Lovers yeah. Left Alive, um, which it's just, it seems um, like a worse nightmare for a director, though. I mean, it's one thing if, like, these are your friends and you're directing, like, a music video on yeah. these treadmills and, like, you know. But in what if movie. you're... Yeah, you're directing strangers in a movie. There's a lot of people on set. It's a big budget, you know. What do, what do directors have to do, especially for something like Snowpiercer or or even Step Up All In, to um, to ensure safety on set? Because, like, they they should... Like, they know what they're doing, but still there's a risk. Yeah, I think you have to have everybody on your team really committed 
to safety. I mean, for instance, in in this new pitch, perfect movie, um, Rebel Wilson does quite a few stunts, and and actually, so does Anna Kendrick. All the girls do. And um, I was really careful hiring our stunt coordinator, and I obviously want someone who's creative and has you know all great ideas and and everything. But I also really wanted to make sure I found someone who is very safety minded. A so that nobody gets hurt first and foremost. But second of all, just because someone who everybody knows is safety-minded will make everybody more comfortable and you feel better and perform better when you're comfortable, no matter what your job is. So um, it really, her name is Jennifer Badger, and she was really, really great at making sure everyone knew at all times we were safe and we were doing things the safest way and, you know, letting people know what needed to be. She was just very transparent about that. Shout out to Jennifer Badger. She's fantastic, yeah. It has to be nice to be working with a female stunt coordinator, too. Yeah, it really was. It was... um, it was refreshing because, you know, I've known so many male stunt dudes and stunt coordinators and, and she is seriously badass. Um, and she just but she's still really feminine and she thinks like a woman and she understands the concerns of a woman. And she is just like a really feminine, tough broad. I loved her. Um, there's one final thing that I want to make sure that we talk about with yeah. Snowpiercer. Okay. And um, that has to do with the character of uh, Nam Gung, mm-hmm. who is just one of my favorites. Me too. And also, um, the actor is one of my favorite actors, too. He's he, amazing. He's also in The Host. Yeah. Um, as well as the the woman, the young woman who plays Yona. Um, and they are just the most wonderful people. Um, and there's something great about his motivations in this movie that it's different from um uh, Curtis's motivations. Yeah. Like yeah, of course Curtis wants to get to the 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 engine of the train, like the head of the right. train and he kind of wants to like usurp, you know, like take his like take all of their rightful place, you know, at yeah. the head. Whereas um Nam Namgung is like Screw all of it. Like, this, yeah. yeah. Why are you even doing this? Like, we should be looking at it. The train way. itself is the problem. Yeah, the <laughs> yeah. train is the problem. Yeah, I, that's what I love about it. Like, you know, the hero's not completely the hero. I think there's a lot of problems with Curtis's character and a lot of problems with his journey, and that's sort of the whole point of the movie. Um, you know, this traveling, this this traveling literally from one end to the other and expecting that it's going to change things or expecting that you have some right to be somewhere mm-hmm. and someone else doesn't or, you know, and not seeing that the entire system that this thing is based on is fucked. Like, yeah. that is the greatest. And being willing to just, you know, risk something potentially deadly just to get out of like one of the questions I kept asking myself as I was watching it was like I would I would do anything to get out of that train I would I would rather die in that snow in three seconds than be on that train in any of those cars yeah except maybe the knitting lady in the greenhouse having a great time in the greenhouse Um, I would be her but everybody else I was like I there's nothing worse than that train um and and I love that one guy thinks you can escape it by sort of, like you said, beating it or controlling it, and one guy knows you just can't. You, yeah. It's it's the train is the problem. But the thing is, like as I'm watching it, I don't I don't in, understand that Namgung is is the right guy. I'm like, get with the program, man. Like you, they need your help. Yeah. Like I don't I don't I can't process that until the end, and then I'm like, oh my god. Yeah. You're so right. You know. But also like. 
he's right, but he, he he's right that there's essentially not a solution. That's not the other thing I love about it. Like I was saying, there's no sort of clear right and wrong or clear happy or tragic ending. It's all just so mixed because, you know, yeah, the train had to be destroyed. The train was bad. But at the same time, it's also bad in the snow. It's bad. Like, and I know he thinks the world is thawing and maybe it's not going to be so bad out there. But like, I don't know. It's all pretty bad. Yeah. I mean, like it's they, all pretty bad. Like right before any of this happens, like they do punish someone by sticking out um, the their, arm, the arm and it freezes immediately and they yeah. lose the arm. Um, so, you know, you you're not sure like who to trust, who to think of. But that's why, you know, uh, the ending to me felt so satisfying. Yeah. It felt like a relief that we were off this goddamn train. <laughs> you know, some people say that Bong was intending for like an Adam and Eve type allegory there that mm-hmm. they're going to like go ahead and pop. In fact, there's a quote that he says, like, they're going to go and repopulate the planet now, which yeah. is like, whoa, because I thought with her with, with her holding little Tim's hand, like I I saw that much more as like big sister or like taking care of a child. Like I saw that very maternal. Yeah. And to think of them like 10 years down the road, humping and making yeah. babies and then inbreeding. I was like, wow, that's what he had in mind? Yeah, it's pretty gross. And a lot of people think, like, well, this isn't happy at all. That polar bear is about to eat them. Like, I guess polar bears are one of only three animals that like to eat people. Have you heard that? Because we taste really bad. We smell bad and we taste bad to most animals. Like, that, we're slow Mm -hmm. and we can't jump very high. We can't climb. We don't have claws. Like, we have basically no protection against wild animals eating us except that apparently we taste horrible (laughs) to almost every animal but polar bears like us and we're riddled with diseases too and we were disgusting yeah but polar bears like to eat people so the fact that like that's like you know that polar bear is going to eat them i did not even think about that that's what i thought the ending that the polar bear oh shit so i mean it's quite mixed like that's what i think is the beauty of this movie like every single silver lining has a giant cloud behind it and every single cloud has a silver lining it's very sophisticated that way and it just doesn't force feed any morality or anything it's just like check out this fucking mixed up mess that's what it says to me (laughs) that is my favorite way to end this episode um thank you so much trish for coming on to talk about snow piercer bong joon ho's classic uh now classic i mean i'm ready to to call it classic To, to me it's a Total Did you know they're making classic. a TV series? TNT. I heard that. Yeah. All right. So everyone, this is a good reason to watch this movie now so you can get ready for the TV series. Jennifer Connelly is going to be the voice of the train. What does that mean? Oh, shit. I don't know. Sorry. I don't know. <laughs> Postscript. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much. Good luck with Pitch Perfect 3. Thank and thank you. you so much for stopping by. And thanks for everyone for listening. Next week, we'll be talking to producer, actress, and writer Lottie Ferris Knowles about her movie Chastity Bites and the 1978 horror fantasy, The Legacy. If you like what you're hearing, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and we'll read them on air. Here's a few we received over the holidays. Prince Trader, good name, says deep, insightful, empathetic. Love it. Well, we love you. Athena Girl 1990 says part of the charm of the show is that it always feels like the films are recommended by close friends. Thank you, sisters. Thank you, Athena. R. Larson 4 says love to get insights into classic films while learning about new works. That is exactly the point of the show. And Endin Cinema says I'm addicted. 
Well, we're glad. If you want to let us know what you think of the show, you can tweet at us at Switchblade Pod or email us at Switchblade Sisters at MaximumFun.org. Our producer is Casey O'Brien. Our senior producer is Laura Swisher. This is a production of MaximumFun.org. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.